Chris, wherever you are. Again, thank you for being here this morning. Apologize for a little lateness here, but there was no sound person. So Chris has rescued us this morning. So thank you, Chris. All right. And you might ask, why does the man want the uh, sound system to be on? Well, first of all, it's easier for me to speak without being concerned about whether you can hear me, although I can raise my voice. But the main issue is for the taping of the, the lesson. You know, we tape sermons, we tape teachings, and we put them online and et cetera. And so you can have availability for those that you've missed or perhaps if you want to listen 38 times and you still didn't agree with the uh, teaching. So if you have missed any of the teachings so far, we're in lesson number three this morning in Colossians. Again, let me encourage you to go online or get a CD and, and catch up with us as we pursue God's purpose in this letter to the Colossians. So again, thank you for being here. It's wonderful to see you. Uh, let's begin with prayer. Father, Father, what can we say except to say thank you and we are available to you for your purpose. Father, we ask that you would cause us to all the time be astounded with our salvation. Father, would you put in our hearts a continuing sense of awe and gratitude that you, through the death, burial, and resurrection of your Son, have saved me, have saved us. Father, we pray that gratitude, thanksgiving, would be a much greater permeating aroma in our hearts, in our lives, in the things that we say, in the way we live. So, Father, we begin this morning, as we begin to look at Paul's prayer of thanksgiving, Father, we begin this morning asking you not only to cause us to understand and appreciate what this apostle is doing and saying, but, Father, also causing by your Spirit this attitude, this appreciation, to become ours in a deeper way. We know it is ours by your Spirit who lives in us, but manifested in a greater way in our lives. In Jesus' name, we thank you. Amen. Amen. Well, this morning we take the next little section of Scripture, verses 3 to 8. And by the way, when we teach the Word of God, typically, especially in the letters, these writers are writing and they are dealing with issues and they are approaching issues within a context of this issue, that issue, I'm saying this and I'll move on to that and so on. So often you'll see this section or that section or we're going to take this block of material and break it into pieces or whatever. But don't feel that if you understand and sense the word or see something different, I don't see it flowing this way from verse 3 to verse 20. I, I really see it. It's okay. This is not biblical in the way to say 3 through 8 is an absolute biblical mandate. This is just how I felt the Lord leading me to teach this particular uh, portion of Scripture. 
So that's why we're taking it this way. So this morning, we pick it up, chapter 1, verses 3 to 8. Paul, you remember, has already told the people, Paul, an apostle, remember, called by the will of God, called by the will of God. And then in verse 2, he says, I am talking to the saints and faithful brethren at Colossae. So we've dealt with that. Who is the writer? Paul, he's writing to the church in Colossae. It's a church he has not founded that was founded by Epaphras, which we'll see a little bit today. And so Paul is, again, encouraging them and writing to them because certain activities and philosophies or misuse of the law was beginning to permeate and come into the church. And what we're going to do when we get into that section a little further on, when Paul begins to talk about the misuse of the law through these activities, which we'll share, I'm going to take at least one class to try to give us a better elaboration and understanding of exactly what the law is all about. What was the Old Testament law? What is its purpose? And what is its purpose today in us? Does it still have a function in us? And if it does, and since it does, what is that function and how are we relate to the law? So we want to do that a little later on. But this morning, we pick it up in verse 3. And Paul says, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Now, what we're going to do is we always will just travel through and make comments about the Word of God, and then you just take whatever notes that you need to if they're not already in your notes. All right, after greeting the church now, Paul offers a prayer of thanksgiving to the church. He greets the church, and the very next thing he does, he says he gives thanks to God for this church, and we'll see why he does that in just a moment. So first of all, we always thank God. You see, for Paul, thanksgiving is one of the most fundamental results of experiencing God's grace. Thanksgiving is that permeating feeling, that experience that we have, that we were the recipients of the most astounding gift that God could ever and will ever give to the most undeserving people. And that is the gift of eternal life through the sacrificial death of his own son. And as I said in the beginning, one of the things we need, at least if we don't have it, and probably if you're like I am, I have to, if you would, fight for this. I have to remember to do this. Ask God to continually permeate us with the spirit of thanksgiving, with the spirit of gratitude. And one person said, and I don't know who said this, but gratitude not expressed is not gratitude. So we're not talking about just a quiet, thank you, God, for this, for that, especially in relation to other people and who they are in our lives and what they're doing in our lives and the impact. We need to be expressing gratitude. It was years and years and years that I did not express very much gratitude at all. I remember for years, Gene and I were married, I don't know how many years at the, same, at the time, and, you know, Mother's Day would come around, and, and I wouldn't give my wife any present or card. Why? What, what did I tell you? You're not my mama. <laughs> you know, I, listen, I was raised in a very austere, different kind of a home than maybe some of you were. She's not my mama. And the Lord really began to deal with me that this is not gratitude to my wife for being a mother. 
And so next year, I'm going to start giving her a card. No. <laughs> so gratitude. And, and I'm going to say this. This is going to sound self-serving, and I cannot search my, my motives on this, so I will admit this sinful issue in this comment. But I'm hoping that most of the comment is not sinfully motivated. One of the weaknesses I see in this church is a very great lack of gratitude expressed. It's there, but it's not expressed. To those who serve in the ministry here, through sermons, through teachings, or whatever. You know, once in a while, we'll get a card or email or whatever, thank you for that word or whatever. And, 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 and we're not looking for everybody to start patting us on the back. That is not what we want. But what God wants is a church that is permeated with gratitude for what he is doing, gratitude to him. And this is what he wants from us. We need to be a church that is a thankful, thanksgiving, gratitude, appreciative church of the presence and work of God among us in whatever category. We always thank God. So, what he's doing here when he's thanking God, he's transferring the honor and the glory and the attention from himself to God where it belongs. And so one of the reasons perhaps I remember for me, I remember for me, and I'm not the greatest in the world, but God is growing in this area in me. I would not give thanks where it was due because I, I felt in a way that it was taking away from me. You know what I mean? It, it just, I, it wasn't, it was something about me that was preventing that. If I thank him for this, this is an acknowledgement that I needed help or I received from, from some, something from someone else or whatever it is. And that is a pride that needs to be broken up. And gratitude is the jackhammer of God that will begin to break up that soil. So if you have a hesitancy in you, a reticence to, to be thankful, make it come out. Force yourself literally to start saying and being thankful allowing God to permeate some of the deep issues in our hearts of pride. So in giving thanks to God, we are following the example of Jesus himself. You remember when Jesus went to the tomb of Lazarus, he said, roll away the stone. And here's Jesus standing before this, stone, uh, this tomb, dark and looking in the face of death itself, the blackness of death itself, no light at all, death, no light at all. And he stands there, and before he does anything, what does he do? The Bible says he lifts up his eyes and he says, Father, I thank you that you always hear me. But I say this so that they will know that you always hear me. And then in a loud voice, what did he say? Lazarus, come forth. So Jesus started that great work of ministry and power with a word of gratitude. We always thank God. God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, by thanking God the Father... Paul is not devaluing the Son or the Spirit, but he is affirming God's triunity here. 
Now, we take this for granted. God the Father, thank the Father, the Father this, the Father that, and we talked a little bit about that last week. The Father now is not only, an, uh, it's not only a title, but in the New Testament, the word Father becomes an actual name. It is now the name that we use to address God the Father. And so when Paul says, I thank God the Father, he is distinguishing the source, the fount, if you would, of the work that God is doing upon the earth. He is, in fact, specifying and specifying the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is declaring that in the one being of God there exists three distinct and divine persons, each being fully God in himself and not by himself. And so when we see the word God, we talked about this last week, in the New Testament, with very rare exceptions, the word God itself refers to the Father. Okay, that's the word that refers to the Father. And so in doing this, when we say Father, typically we're not thinking like the Apostle Paul is thinking. He is thinking in a tri-unity way, in a trinity way about God. He is thinking about God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And he is attributing the work that is happening on the earth to the leadership of God the Father that is applied by the Son in redemption and one and purchase in our redemption and then is made good in our lives by the Spirit. So you see, the three persons of God exist in a community of relational love through distinct roles in which the Father, God, is, if you would, the team leader. And the Son, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit work with God and they function in unity but the son's role is to obey the father's will, and the spirit's role is to obey the will of the father and the son. And so you see in this community three distinct divine persons. And so Paul is acknowledging this when he says, God the Father. We see this relational dynamic, you remember, expressed in Ephesians chapter 3, verses, I'm sorry, Ephesians 1, 3 through 14. And you don't have to look there now, but when you look at that, it is possibly one of the, and maybe the most unique expressions and revelations of the character and of the nature of God, who God is and how God is. In this passage, remember in verse 3 to 6, Paul gives the Father's role. He is the fount, if you would, the source, the leader. It is His will that is permeated and presented and then is carried out by the Son in verses 7 to 12, the Son carries out the Father's will of redemption. And then in verse 13 and 14 of chapter 1, the Holy Spirit is the one who makes this work of Christ, carrying out the will of God through His redemptive shedding of the blood, real in our lives. So you see the activity of the three persons of God here. So by thanking God the Father, Paul is also thanking the Son and thanking the Spirit. And so I know sometimes when we're praying, we feel, oh, I didn't mention Jesus, or I didn't mention the Father, or I didn't mention the Holy Spirit. I don't think we need to be like that. But basically, our prayer life needs to be basically addressed. And we're not going to go into this today, but you have Jesus telling us this. Basically, our prayer life needs to be addressed to the Father. It doesn't mean you never say anything to the Son, you never mention the Holy Spirit, but basically our prayers are to God the Father 
with the understanding that we can pray to God the Father because we have been placed by the Spirit in His Son. And so now we have access to God the Father through the redemptive work of the Son having been applied through our being born again by the Spirit. That's how basically we were to pray as believers. Now, why was Paul moved to pray? What, what caught Paul's attention that he says, wait, I, I want to pray for you. I want to pray for you. What was it about this church? He has heard that the church is doing well. He's heard the church is doing well. Frank and I, where's Frank? Frank and I went to, uh, on two or three mission trips to Russia. And when we were there the first time, remember the church in Toliati was established, and we went back a couple of three different times, and we were in other areas being used by God for the establishment of other churches through the preaching of the gospel. And we would get word from the church, how's the church doing? How is the church doing? And when we began to hear the church is doing well, what happens automatically? What? We give thanks to one another, Frank. Thank you, Frank. Thank you. Peter, you, I thank you. No, no, it's you. No, Frank, no. Immediately when we heard that the church in Toliate was doing well, and is still doing well, remember? We met with, uh, help me to remember, aren't we great, Frank? Two old guys who can't remember a thing. We met with the Russian overseer just a few weeks ago here in town. And when we heard that, our hearts were immediately turned to thanks to God. Thank you, Lord. Thank you. When you hear about Lakeview Christian Center, does your heart immediately turn first to thanksgiving or to criticism or to what's wrong? You know, as one of the pastors, and I hope you don't mind my saying this, I am in a place in this church that I know a lot of what's going on that you don't know, and there are problems. There are deficiencies. There are weaknesses here. They start with us, the leadership. Yes. And they are in the church, and they are in the way we administer the gospel. Weaknesses. We're human beings. Does that startle you? <gasps> and so I have to be careful when I hear something about the church, we're talking about the church, to be guarding myself immediately. Oh, yeah, but you know that. And, and, and begin to think about the things that are wrong or the things that need to be made better and the things we should do that we're not doing. And although that's not necessarily wrong, we do need to be doing things better. We do need to be uh, upgrading. We do need to be correcting. But what we need, first of all, is to be undergirding all of that so it sits on a firm foundation of gratitude, of gratitude. So let's be that way about the church, because I believe that everyone in here probably has some kind of a story about someone or something in this church that has, you didn't like, you didn't agree with, that hurt you, that whatever it is. But let's not ignore those things. But let's deal with them in a way that gratitude permeates so that our hearts are freed to hear from God and freed to receive from God and free to be flowing in the way God is leading us to do. Gratitude, you see. Paul hears about the church. So verse 4, why is he praying? Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope 
laid up for you in heaven. And so you see, Paul hears something. Now, what does he say? Because of your faith in Christ, because of your love for the brethren, and because of the hope that is stored up in you. Well, you remember in verse 2, he's already giving us a hint, has already given us a hint. What does he say in verse 2? To the saints and what? Faithful brethren. So Paul has already given us a hint that he has heard that the church is doing well, not just in a generic sense. Oh, they're doing great. They're doing great. How do you know? Well, they got all kind of people coming in, and then they're doing this and that. Well, they're doing great because of three specific proofs, if you would, or three specific issues. Paul has heard the report of the spiritual fruit that is being produced in the church. He's heard this report, and because of this, he's giving thanks to God. So what does this tell Paul? It tells Paul that the church is spiritually well, is maturing, and is growing. Is spiritually well, is maturing, and growing. The presence of these three. He lists three types of fruit that together prove that their salvation is genuine and is healthy. Three types of fruit that is genuine and healthy. These three together, or a triad of fruit, if you would, that prove that the church is spiritually healthy and is growing. Now, why do we emphasize this? Because one of the things that we need to regularly do in our own lives is to look at the fruit that the Holy Spirit is producing in us. Look at the effect of the gospel in me and in one another without any condemnation, but for the purpose of ministering and helping us to grow as mutual gardeners of one another and gardeners of our own hearts and soul. And so when we see in our own lives a particular area of garden that isn't doing well, we need to tend to that, either personally or hopefully with others coming around us and tending to that. If we see areas of garden in your life and one another's lives, hopefully we don't come put our big foot on the thing and say, boom, now you see, I told you weren't growing. But again, carefully working together in prayer with thanksgiving and asking God and cooperating with God's work of tending to one another so that our garden in all of its areas is growing well for the glory of God. Why? Because you see, God is the great planter and we are the fruit. And as we produce the fruit that he has planted as a result of his planting, he gets the glory. The fruit does not get the glory. The fruit Cast is the revelation of the ability and wisdom of the one who has planted it, and the one who has planted it gets the glory. So we want to be those who want more and more fruit in our lives. Why? So God will be more and more praised. So why is fruit bearing so important? It's God's way of displaying his presence and work in and for the church. Fruitful. I mean, do you remember in Genesis 1:28? There were four mandates. And what was one of them? The Lord said to Adam, what? Be fruitful. Bear much fruit. Be fruitful. Why does a gardener or a farmer put seed in the ground? Why? Why do you think it? I mean, this is not rocket science. This is not a hidden thing here. Why does a farmer get up early in the morning cultivate the ground, water it and do all of that kind of stuff and put seeds in there, you know, and then tends it and so on. Why is he doing that? 
Say what? To get fruit. To get fruit. Is there any other reason the farmer does it? No. He does it for one reason. To get fruit. Why were we saved? So that we would be the fruit of God's work for His glory. We are the living expression of the reality of what God is doing for His praise. So you see, the church was created for this purpose. We were created, we were born again for one purpose, and that is to produce the fruit of righteousness. This is why we were saved. Remember in John 15, 8, Jesus says, By this my Father is glorified. By what? How? That you bear much fruit, and so prove or demonstrate to be my disciples. So what fruit is God desiring to produce in us? What kind of fruit? You see, this is God's fruit in us, not ours in Him. It grows in the soil of obedience. So what is it? If you look at 1 Corinthians 13, 13, Paul gives us the fruit there. The three tri the triad of fruit that God is interested and wants to have happen in us. And these are three that go together. What is it? What does 1 Corinthians 13, 13 say? There remains what? Faith, hope, and love. These three, but the greatest is love. Now, we're not going to go into that today, but the greatest of love. So, what do we have in verse 3 of this, verse 4 of this particular letter? Paul says, when I heard of your faith in Christ Jesus, your love for the brethren, and that hope of the coming righteousness, you know, the hope of glory, essentially. When I heard that faith, hope, and love are being produced in you, I am excited. I am praising God. I am rejoicing. I am thankful for that. Now, faith, hope, and love. Let me just take a dog leg to the right just a second. Do you remember in Galatians chapter 5, Paul in verse 19 to 20 is giving us a list of the works of unrighteousness. Remember the works of the flesh. Remember that? And then in verse 22 of Galatians 5, Paul says, but the Fruit of the Spirit. Remember this? Do you remember where I am in Galatians 5, 22? But the fruit of the Spirit. The word fruit there is kapos. It's singular. It's not fruits of the Spirit, as some people say. It is a singular word. The fruit of the Spirit. Here's what I believe Paul is doing. The fruit of the Spirit is love. James, that's what the fruit of the Spirit is. It's love. Now, what does love look like? Well, I believe what he's telling you now is the experience of love is joy. Then the effect of love is peace. And then the expression of love is patience all the way to self-control. I believe that's what Paul is telling us. Is. Now, it's not wrong to say all of these are the fruits of the Spirit. Of course they are. But I think more what Paul is getting at is, let me explain to you how do you know that the love of God is at work and present in your life? Do you experience the joy of salvation? Do you experience the effect of peace within yourself? Peace with God, the peace of God. And are you experiencing the expression, or are you expressing patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, you see, goodness, self-control. Are you expressing these? Now, how many of us have found this out in life? 
that if I am not experiencing joy and peace, it is doggone well maybe impossible for me to really be patient with someone. How many, how many how have you seen that? You see, so when I am not experiencing peace and joy, the expression begins to fall off. And so what do I need to work on? I, I need to be more patient. I need to be more kind. Well, that's true. In other words, the kindness and the goodness and the whatever, the gentleness of God needs to be more manifested in me. But how is it done? Not by me trying to, mm, I'm going to, it's coming forth. No, it's going to God and saying, Father, I need a greater dose, experience, work of joy and peace in me. Because out of joy and peace come the expression. So how will people know that I am a man who has experienced the joy and the peace of God's salvation? How, how are they going to know that? <clears throat> By the rest of the words, the fruit that is expressed there. Gentleness, kindness, goodness, patience. You remember? Self-control, faithfulness. That's how they know that we're believers. That's one of the essential ways of knowing that, the fruit of the Spirit. So I believe Paul is saying love is the fruit. Joy is the what? Experience. Peace is the effect. And then from patience to self-control is the expression. So what does he say in verse 4? You have faith in Christ. Faith is the gift of God to us, enabling us to believe and embrace the truth of the gospel. Faith. Faith is God's work in my heart that when I hear the gospel, the Holy Spirit is at work in me, birthing me into the kingdom of God by wooing me, having warned me of the death and the destruction of sin, he begins to woo me by his love and draw me into himself so that I experience his love. And what do I do? If God is at work in my heart and he is at work in your heart, he only does this in those whom he will save. I, by faith, I literally am being embraced by God's love. And faith is my returning that embrace and embracing him back. It's my receiving what God has done and what God continues to do. He says, love for all the brethren. No, now here's a problem. You see, because there's some brethren that you can love better than other brethren. Anybody, you know this? There was a, there's a fellow in the church years ago, and a very needy man. You know, one of these people who constantly were having problems and difficulties and needs. And I, I told you already, and you may be astounded by this, but I'm a human being, and I have faults. Only Bill Treby and I know these things. And this guy began to get on my nerves. I mean, I began to cop an attitude. I began to become impatient, you know, like, huh. Anybody in the church like that? Am I the only one who's ever experienced that? Began to get on my nerves. I mean, how much... Joey, how much problem do I have to put up with someone? And it wasn't you, but <laughs> everybody looks at Tap and aha, uh -huh, he's the one. I began to cop an attitude. And the Holy Spirit 
God is so good. And he didn't come up to me and say, hey, what's the matter with you? I'm more inclined to do that than God is. And he says to me, he says, if that were Jonathan, that's my grandson. He said, if that were Jonathan, would you want someone to cop an attitude to him if he had a need? That killed the attitude. The attitude was gone. It's gone. Love for the brethren. The next time you were getting ground down and pressured and in the corner with whatever is going on, especially with another believer, just think of the person, a person whom you love and say, you know, God, I would not want anyone to have this attitude about my wife, daughter, grandson, child, or whoever. Thank you. Love for the brethren is the way most essentially that I know, that we know we're saved. Amen? Love for the brethren is the most vital way I know that I am saved. Loving them with the same kind of love with which I have been loved by God. That kind of love. Love for the brethren. Our embracing the gospel is a result of our having been embraced by God's love, which then God begins to reproduce in us for the brethren. As God has loved us, that same love that we have experienced being brought into the kingdom is now turned out in us and out from us to others. And we are to be embracing and ministering and walking with one another in the very same way that God has embraced and has, is walking with us. And so the next time you get impatient with someone, the next time you're unforgiving, uh, the next time you are whatever with another believer, stop for a moment and say, has God ever treated me even one time with this kind of an attitude that I am copping against this other believer? You're not going to be able to say he's done that. That's what God wants of us. And that's the fruit that God is producing in us, hope. Hope that looks heavenward. Hope that doesn't set its sight and anchored in this world. So much to say about that. But hope that looks beyond this world. You see, the gospel transformed, has transformed our having no hope. Remember in Ephesians 2.12, having no hope in this world. You ain't got no hope. It has taken that absolute darkness of no hope and transferred it into the very brilliance of hope in Christ. And what is the hope? Jesus coming back. He's coming back. So don't wrench your hand about the climate and the finances. I have to be like you. I had to fight against it too. And about what's going to happen in Russia. And about what about this, this, this purient uh, stuff that's flowing across this country. What about it all? Jesus is preparing to return. Now, I don't like it any more than you do living in hot water, but I have to remind myself the days are getting worse, aren't they? They're getting worse. Why? Because Jesus is turning up the heat and things are getting ready. He's coming back. So we must say, bring it on, Lord, and come on down. Yes, we need to have a hope that is beyond this place. 
beyond this place. I have to, like you do, I have to fight for this regularly. My wife would tell you, I'm not always joyful and filled with faith when I look at the, uh, the news. I'm not saying, oh, thank you, Jesus, for this revelation. I'm normally too critical. What in the world do they think they're doing? There must be nothing. Then I have to step back and remember, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Obama isn't a problem. The Republicans aren't a problem. Sin is the problem. The rule of Satan is coming to an end. And God is coming back in the person of this risen man to rule and reign in a new heaven and a new earth. And we're going to be there with him, ruling and reigning with him. Now you see, that's a hope. We need to talk more about that kind of a hope. Why? Because it transforms what is going on in my heart and causes me to be, if you would, outside of the fleshly attitudes into a spiritual dimension where I need to live more regularly so that my fleshly house can be lived and moved by and occupied by and controlled by this spiritual reality. There's a hope. Paul says this in 1 Thessalonians 5.8, But since we belong to the day, this is the day the Lord hath made, let us rejoice and be glad in it. What day? The day of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We are living in the last day of God's earthly economy, waiting for this day to close and for the new day to dawn. And we are people of the new day dawning, living still in the old day, but we're getting to the new day. Amen? We're looking for the new day. We belong to the day. Let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. You see, Jesus is coming back. He's coming back. He's coming back. So these two, these three constitute what God is doing. Verse 5, of this you have heard before the word of the truth, the gospel. You heard it before. You've heard this. Which has come to you as indeed into the whole world. It is bearing fruit and growing as it also does among you since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God in truth. I'm going to go through this section more quickly because I thought the section to bear down on would be the first one. Of this fruit, of what? Of this, this fruit, this fruit of activity that you've heard before in the word of the gospel, the truth, the gospel, which has come to you. Paul reminds them, how did they get the gospel? The gospel had come to them. It had been delivered to them through faithful brethren, through others who were living in the reality of the resurrection of Christ and whose lives were permeated by and were producing the fruit of the gospel. The greatest way of evangelizing is not knocking someone in the head with a big King James Bible and saying, oh, you saved. But the greatest way of evangelism is what? What did Jesus say? By this shall all men know that you are my disciples, that you have love for one another. This is the greatest power of evangelism, the fruit of the Spirit within the context of the church. That is the power of God that moves out and catches people's attention better than anything else. And so when people see us, they need to see a radically different kind of a person. Paul is ever reminding them of the favor of God in their salvation. The gospel has come to us. Remember in Ephesians 2, 4, he's already told them in the first three verses, you're dead in your sin and trespasses, you're children of wrath, you know, judgment is coming. And then what does he say in verse 4? But God, being what? Rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. You've been saved by grace through faith. The gospel has come to us. 
we ever need to remind ourselves of that simple truth. We, I think we take it for granted way too often, way too often, regularly. Remind yourself, I'm saved by the grace of God. Remind yourself of this. There is not one person in this room, in this church, in this world who has ever been saved that God needed to save. He was never obligated to save any one of us in particular, in particular. Karen, he could have easily left you in your sin and walk right past you, and you would be dead in sins and trespasses for eternity, suffering the judgment of God. But God saved you. He saved you. Butch, he saved you. He could easily have walked right past you. wasn't obligated. Your name wasn't uh, obligation. Your name was written down, but it wasn't God's obligation. He just did it because he wanted. You see, he could have, on time, just passed you by. We need to remember this. God could have easily, by the Spirit, walked right past us. Do you know how many people the Holy Spirit is walking past in this world? I mean, you hate to say that, don't you? Is it pleasant to say that? But it's true. How many people is God, the Spirit, walking by, passing them by? But He saved you, didn't He? He saved you, didn't He? He saved you and you. He saved you, 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 and you, and you, and you. He could have passed. We could have been in the multitude that Jesus is already down the road, and there's no hope for eternity for us. Let's remember this What gratitude. And hopefully it can begin to overcome all these, these issues of life that today seem so important. Friends in Christ, we're going home one day. We're going home one day. How did they come to hear the gospel? You remember, you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. Epaphras. Epaphras has preached the gospel. Let me close with this quotation from Romans. And it's so important that we see this. And we've heard this many times. All of you know about the Great Commission. You remember where the Great Commission of Jesus is in Matthew what? 28, 18 to 20. Remember that? All authority in heaven and earth has been given unto me. What? Therefore go and make disciples. Teaching them. Remember that? And baptizing. And so every one of us if we're saved, we are going to want to share this gospel. There's going to be something in us like that song, I got to tell somebody, got to tell somebody, got to tell somebody. Now, how you do it and what flavor and mechanics of it is between you and the Holy Spirit. But here's what Paul says in Romans 10, 13 to 17. You'll recognize these verses. For everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Right? How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. I'll shut it down today this way. Years ago, Bill, I'm not sure, I don't, I don't know whether you were in the service. Years ago, 78, 79 or whatever, we're having Sunday night service here. Remember, Cliff was still the pastor. And we had 
a, a, uh, a missionary from Ecuador, American missionary, went down to Ecuador. And he was sharing with the church the missionary activity. And I've shared this several times, so hang on if you have heard it and be okay with it. And so as he's sharing, he said, you know, they went through the bushes and all that back in the jungles of Ecuador where no white man had ever been before. Just, you know, the native Indians and cutting the way through until they came to a clearing and they, they, they found the, the people living there in, in that little area. And so through the interpreter, they set up the, the way of he could preach. He started preaching the gospel. He started sharing the gospel. And he said, everything was okay until he said the name Jesus. He said, when I said the name Jesus, one of these native men jumped up and started yelling and screaming. It's like, oh, my word, what have I done now? Jumped up, started yelling and screaming. See, these people had not, not, not only not heard the gospel, they hadn't even seen a white guy. Jumped up and started yelling and screaming. It calmed him down. He said, after the service, he went to talk to the man through the interpreter. What's going on? And the man said, for five years, I've been going to the clearing and looking over the valley. I know you're there. I want to know your name. I know you're there. I want to know your name. And when this, name said, this man said, Jesus, that was it. How are people in far-off lands going to hear the gospel? Because God, the Holy Spirit, will communicate it to every child whom he will save. Amen? Next week, we'll get into verses 9 and following. And as you read these verses, I want you to read them in the context of Genesis 1 and 2, because we're going to spend a lot of time going back and forth and looking at some of that language that Paul uses. See you next week. <clears throat>